Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. If you're just picking this project up again after a long break, you might want to listen to the last couple episodes before this one, as we've been unpacking David's sin with Bathsheba and the downward spiral that he embarked on long before he took his walk on the roof. Another factor comes into play when, instead of leading them himself, David sends Joab at the head of the army against the Ammonites and their mercenaries in the payback assault for the half-bearded, naked-bottomed ambassador-shaming incident. That was back in 2 Samuel 10, if you didn't read it before. Not that there's anything patently wrong with sending a commander instead of going yourself when you're the king, but it's not like David had something else to do. It could seem to be a matter of pride on his part that he was not going to stoop so low as to legitimize his enemies by his royal presence, or that he felt that our big covenant moment with him set him above the level of a common commander-in-chief. Whatever his motives, the absence of activity on David's part leads to one of the greatest dangers in life. Boredom. Boredom is the next step in the king's gradual progression of downward spiral from his peak experience in my presence to his failure and betrayal in adultery and murder. While it wasn't until the 19th century that an Englishman penned the proverb that an idle brain is the devil's workshop, uh, that's H.G. Bone in his Handbook of Proverbs, A handful of you actually attribute this lick mistakenly to the owner's manual. The truth of that 200-year-old proverb is clearly seen in David's steps, and in yours. And so several things have been going on, or rather not going on, in David's heart in the days prior to his sin with Bathsheba and his resultant murderous cover-up. The leader who had consistently sought my guidance and desired to be led by me has stopped reaching out to me and has withdrawn his heart from my presence. The active, resourceful youth who had used his spare shepherding time to hone his skills at slingshot and lyre has let his activity and maturity coast to a standstill. And so the bored king takes a walk on the palace roof to see what he might see. Note throughout this season of David an echo of the theme of appetite, just like Samson. As David seeks to find something interesting to look at, you must remember that this is long before your habitat's variety of screen-centered diversions. You can sit still before your television or computer and bring before your eyes all manner of sights to relieve your boredom. In order to see something different, David had to actually get up off his couch and walk around. And if David encounters danger in his decidedly low-tech trolling for distraction, you can be certain there's far more danger waiting at your fingertips today.
Obviously, David's sin may be occasioned by boredom, but it is ultimately lust-driven. And in some of your lives, there's no avoiding the link with lust to the screens we've just mentioned in terms of where you turn for distraction in your boredom. David had to walk on his roof to catch a voyeur's momentary look at the flesh of someone else's wife. You need only press a few buttons for far more than a fleeting glance. David's catching an eyeful of Bathsheba from his roof may have been accidental. What he did in response was deliberate and sinful. His lust was obviously aroused, but he could and should have redirected that ardor towards one of his own wives rather than Uriah's. Although he's apparently refused to bed with Saul's daughter Michal because of her scolding him after his dance before my ark when it was moved to Jerusalem, uh, 2 Samuel 6.23, David has at least six other wives, Ahinoam, Abigail, Maacah, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah, six to which he can turn now without transgression. And these are only the wives whose names are listed in the owner's manual. 2 Samuel 5.13 mentions David being blessed with even more wives and concubines on moving to Jerusalem. Instead of all these sanctioned relationships, he satisfies his hunger with the forbidden fruit of another man's wife. Forbidden fruit has a sweetness to it. At first, there's no denying it. If there was no pleasure in sin, you wouldn't keep going back to it. However, in contrast to how the sexual part of your life is designed to work, to bind you more strongly to the person with whom I have joined you for life, the sweetness sours and turns bitter when you seek satisfaction elsewhere. Or at least, it should. The bitter taste of sin's aftermath can act like a strong whiff of smelling salts and wake you from your stupor, driving you back to us in repentance. That is, unless your heart is dulled, hard, and cold like David's, in which case you are driven to merely cover your tracks. And so some of the sin in your life is also similar to David's in its ongoing escalation, along the lines of what happens if you lie. After the first one, you have to tell more to keep up the charade. Similarly, the king's sin of adultery against Uriah is amplified by David's deceit in bringing the warrior home to foster the assumption that the expected child of adultery is instead the result of this conjugal visit. Again, such is Uriah's nobility that he cannot bring himself to the pleasures of his matrimonial bed when his brothers in arms are out in the field. Something we did not point out earlier in Uriah's statement about his comrades shows yet another league of David's distance from us. You see, when Uriah explains how dishonorable it would be for him to enjoy all the pleasures of home while his fellow warriors are still in harm's way, he tells David he can do no such thing while the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths. This is a more accurate term than tents. This is not a particular bivouac style to which Uriah refers, but rather the Hebrew feast of Sukkot, or booths. Remember, the one Moses instituted in Leviticus 23, 39? 
as an annual reminder of how long their nation had no choice but to live in temporary shelter? The contrast is striking. Even in their less-than-homey surroundings, the soldiers are keeping faith and observing the festival. David, in his mile-high comfort at home, is not. He's not just not seeking me any longer, he's avoiding contact with me altogether, even in times during which every member of my family is commanded to observe a special feast. David's heart has to be hard in order for him to sin the way he does with Bathsheba. But because that sin isn't dealt with and instead is allowed to linger in David, the shell over his heart is hardening further to the point that his public worship life has also been compromised. What he has done in secret has so changed him that his withdrawal from me is now publicly manifest. You see, that's what sin will do to you if you don't deal with it right away. Those first pangs of guilt are woven into our design of your spirit in order to immediately drive you back to us. It's when you don't listen to those pangs and dig in further that another kind of guilt creeps in that is not of our design, guilt that programs you into thinking that you are too flawed and dirty to have anything to do with us, driving you in fact further away from us rather than back into my arms as our guilt was working towards. This other guilt that drives you away is not of our design. It is instead a tool of our, and believe me, your enemy. There's enough to deal with here without giving him any time. I assure you, we will process him when the time comes later on. Regardless of these semantics, you've trod where David is stepping, or better, not stepping. At some point, you've let your hardened heart go so far down the garden path of sin that you've withdrawn both from me and my people. That should really serve as a wake-up call if you are on the way, when that avoidance routine kicks in. When you wake up one morning and realize you haven't checked in with me for a couple weeks, when suddenly it's been a month since you spent time in worship. You know the feeling. You're not feeling it now. If you were, you wouldn't be listening to this. Remember this for future reference, though, and then come back on the way as soon as we help you have that aha moment. And by the way, those of you who notice someone withdrawing from the way should gently reach out to those people. One of the reasons we've put you into a team together is so you can help each other out in times like this. You probably don't need to come crashing in like the prophet Nathan is about to. I do some of my finest restoration work through a phone call and a cup of coffee. Before the prophet enters, though, we are not quite finished examining the anatomy of your sin through David's. You see, because he's gone through all these steps of distancing himself to the point of sin, then adding cover-up and deceit to his list, this man, who was once running after my heart, has run so far in the other direction that he's capable of murdering an innocent man. And it is just as shocking in your habitat 
to see the depths to which someone who once was known for their devotion to me can sink when the scandal hits the news. If you want to know why this or that religious leader has ended up in deplorable compromise, look back over David's progression, and you'll find a similar path in theirs. And yours, if you're not careful. What's the big lesson here, then? You know it before I say it. Don't take your eyes off me. Keep plugged in and retain the perspective that comes from regularly pursuing my presence. Realize and remind yourself that the great things we are doing and creating and giving you and through you to others have their source in us. All the true goodness, beauty, and joy in your life only result from your partnership with us, a partnership with you as the conduit and me as the power source. Copper wire can't turn a light on, but connect it to the power and you've got light, friend. David felt like he had become the power and forgot he was simply a vessel for ours. So, can you catch the primary sin that's at the heart of it all, the thing that has rendered David practically unrecognizable now in comparison to the faithful, Yahweh-seeking, soft-hearted, liar-playing, hymn-writing former shepherd from just a short time ago? His primary sin is not lust, although that's obviously here in spades. No, it's pride. Pride is clearly the beginning of David's sequence here. Who he is now is a stark testament to the power of pride in a person's life. Any person's life. David's initial reaction to my covenant with him was one of deep humility at first, as is clear from what the owner's manual records of his response. However, David clearly shifts from that frame of reference the one in which he's giving us all the thanks and credit, to one in which he is somehow a source, if not the source, of his greatness. The self-talk of pride has gotten so loud in his ears that he hasn't noticed something is missing, or rather, someone is missing. Me. Pride, in fact, is an essential ingredient within every sin, a wedge in your heart nudging you away from us, encouraging you to feel like you know better than we do what will really make you happy. The pride in David crescendos to a climax at the end of his downward spiral where the innocent noble Uriah is murdered so that David can maintain his reputation, his pride, at all costs. Only a handful of servants know Uriah didn't sleep with his wife. The entire army will assume that he did, because by golly the rest of them sure would have, and thus further assume that the child Bathsheba bears is Uriah's. It will even appear to most that good King David has had mercy on Uriah's poor widow by bringing her into his household to be his wife and care for Uriah's offspring. Thus might have all continued to appear, but to quote my boy Bill, Truth will come to light. Murder cannot be hid long. A man's son may, but at the length, truth will out. Act 2, Scene 2, Line 643, The Merchant of Venice. Jeff puts it even simpler. Murder will out. That we see day by day. 
Line 26, The Canterbury Tales, The Nun's Priest's Tale I love David too much for that to be the end of the story. We will pursue a renewed relationship with him next time. I love you too much to not always be after you, my friend. So keep walking with me on the way, and I won't have to send any prophets after you, except the ones I already have. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.